Welcome to Podcast West Seattle. My name is Andrew. This sweet synth pop comes courtesy of the Seattle band Trick Candles. This performance was live at West Seattle's Summerfest back in July. Trick Candles played early Saturday evening, and they got people dancing, even in the hot sun. We'll hear more from Trick Candles and meet a couple of members of the band later in the show. This week on Podcast West Seattle, it's 30 years of Easy Street with Matt Vaughn. Three guys jump out like it's a sabotage video, and they're like, where's the wax? We'll also hear about some upcoming library events. And bring the family down to have fun with gizmos, gadgets, circuits, robots, and marvels of engineering. And get a peek at what's coming up this season from Arts nice. West. And it's a story that doesn't get told very often, and it needs to be told. This is Podcast West Seattle. First up on this episode, sometime in 1988, a little record store in West Seattle got a new owner and changed its name from Penny Lane to Easy Street. In coordination with the West Seattle Junction Association, I stopped by Easy Street to visit with Matt Vaughn and discuss 30 years of selling records. It's so sick. Like, I'm so pumped. This is Mark. that too. He just walked out of Easy Street Records at the corner of Alaska and California at West Seattle's Junction. Yeah, that, that record store is really, really cool. This year, Easy Street Records turns 30 years old. For 30 years now, people have been walking out onto that corner, sliding their newly purchased music out of the bag for an early peek. I asked Mark what he got. It's a Tim Armstrong album. He's a dude from Rancid. Yeah. That's a really good record. That's Matt Vaughn. My name's Matt Vaughn. He's the reason Easy Street exists. Uh, I guess I'm the owner-president of Easy Street Records, 30 years. We met late in the afternoon in the store's legendary cafe. We sat down to reflect on 30 years of Easy Street Records. Matt got into the record scene early. Tweens and teens, you know, I was just a record store junkie. I was going to the Cellophane Square and Peaches and Fallout. And there was a store out here, Penny Lane, I ended up getting a job at when my folks, my family moved from Capitol Hill to West Seattle my sophomore year in high school. And so I started working at that shop. That was it's right next to West Five, where the next to the hobby shop used to be. Uh, and uh, I just really enjoyed working at the shop. Ended up working at another store as well uh, at the same time. So if I wasn't working at a shop, I was going to them. And it really kind of was a dream to own a own my own record store. Uh, it was a dream that came true sooner rather than later. Well, that's one reason why I don't have a date on when the store opened, right. because the changeover, how that happened when uh, Willie, who was kind of my mentor, the guy that owned Penny Lane, when he threw me the keys, I don't remember when that was. And I was a freshman <laughs> at Seattle University, and then I was a sophomore. So it was around that time, and I had a high school buddy that would work for me when I couldn't do it. And I, I thought that I was only going to do it for a little while and go back to school. So there he was, barely out of high school, running a business, and anyone who's tried to run a business can tell you how hard it is. But Matt had some real savvy for the record store business. A lot of the fuddy-duddy stores just were missing some opportunities in in two ways. One, 
there was a music scene growing that maybe they weren't aware of. Secondly, uh, you know, the CD was coming out. We'll hear more about those two reasons in just a minute. But there's another key to business here. Location, location, location. The only reason why I even considered it is I walked past here as I walked home. I'd have to do all the work to fix it up. It was me <laughs> and uh, my buddy Gary Mortensen, and we uh, moved walls and, and put some light fixtures in and uh, cleaned up the floor and had some other friends help, help, help us out. And after three months, got it open and... You know, it was still crickets in the neighborhood, uh, and there, you know, every other, every other storefront. People don't believe this now, cause, I mean, but every other storefront was vacant. It was tumbleweeds coming through the junction. You know, at that time, I would be often the only employee working, and I would yell my order down to Jack or one of his kids down at Husky Deli. I would yell it from the corner to the deli because I couldn't leave the shop. I was the only person. And, so, and then they would walk it over. Um, and if you look at the menu there, it's, there's, a, there's an item called Matt's Special. And it's uh, tuna fish with Mama Littles. And, and now, in addition to the high visibility location, Matt had an understanding of the power of the compact disc. Bosses that I had at the two separate stores both were looking to get out of the business while the CD was coming in because they saw this format as too expensive. It's just another format change. They've already gone through eight tracks, cassette, vinyl, used vinyl. And I saw it as an opportunity because one, I was young enough to appreciate the CD. It's like young people today with, with streaming for example, it's part of your generation, you're part of the, the swell, you know, and the groundswell of that. And so, you know, I was watching nine and a half weeks just like everyone else, and when Ricky Rourke puts in his Harmon Carden CD and Kim Basinger's dancing around, it's like, that was, you know, sexy. And there was a sexiness to the CD. People may not admit that now, but uh, I did think they were too expensive, but I thought if you could cultivate a, a trade program, a used program through that, you'd be buying UCs for half the price maybe. And so that's when I started the CD club. And you know, we've gone through, you know, a half a million of those cards at this point. But that's kind of what got us going and gave me a leg up, even being all the way out here in West Seattle, buying that, you know, 15, you know, buy 15, get one free and trading CDs. Uh, trading your records at the time, trading your records in for CDs, and now it's trading your CDs in for, for records. And then there's the local music scene. Uh, after I was starting to do a little, doing, doing all right with the shop, I started doing some tour management and band management and booking shows. Easy Street Records is so synonymous with local music, it's almost hard to imagine that it was a choice Matt had to make. It was an easy choice as an audiophile who'd gotten involved with managing a couple of bands. And so the first tour I went on was the Alice in Chains tour. I, in particular, was man band managing a band called Grunt Truck. We all just became part of that Alice in Chains crew. Well, they started as club shows. Right. Uh, and then they became... Uh, 
arena shows. It all happened within seven weeks. Uh, and I wish I was keeping a diary at the time, but I remember that I said to Alice, Chase manager, you know, why is it that you have a bodyguard? You know, the band's not that big yet. And she was like, well, we're just preparing because it's happening. And uh, we also want to keep playing in check. Yeah. Uh, but when it when the big change happened was when we get through the seven weeks throughout the whole U.S. Of course, it ends in Seattle. Oversold to the point where we had to add a second key arena show. That's when we knew, okay, this is it's on. Uh, but for me, it uh, it wasn't my lifestyle, and I knew that after the, the second tour, and then we were going to to do Europe, Grunt Truck opening for Pantera, and I was like, I, I don't want to do it. You know, as as glamorous as that might seem, you know, there was a darkness to the of the to the Seattle scene yeah. and the Seattle lifestyle, and that kind of got to me a little bit. I just sensed some, some of that darkness, and I'm. You know, born and raised here in Seattle, I was missing home. I was still, you know, very close to my parents, my sister, my friends, and it just wasn't my lifestyle. Especially because I kind of took my job seriously, and I realized, okay, well, touring isn't what I want to do. Band management isn't necessarily what I want to do. And I fell in love with West Seattle. Once he was fully committed to the store more success followed. The CD was doing what I thought it was going to do. And if anyone remembers those early days of Easy Street here on the corner, you know, it was wall-to-wall CDs with also a wall of cassettes. And we had a little vinyl room. Uh, I was still very dedicated to vinyl. And for myself, I was a, still an a, a audiophile vinyl collector um, and was out junking all the time for, for records. And... I was personally doing all the record buys and record trades, but all, it was in a, by appointment only to see the vinyl, and you had to go down the stairs. We'd take you down there, and you could spend as much time as you wanted. That's how we became friends with the Beastie Boys, which is a whole other story. But uh, it turns out one of the perks of owning a great record store is that people who are really into records find out about it. I think we're going to need to hear more about that whole other story. In '97, '98, they had the Hello Nasty record come out. And uh, the record was to drop, it was going to drop the following day, I recall, and I get a phone call from West Seattle friend of mine, Dave Blackburn, and he, he says, hey man, I'm, uh, I just picked up the Beastie Boys, I'm the driver for them, uh, for their Seattle stay, and for the uh, Key Arena show uh, day after tomorrow. You know, and he says, hey, uh, I need a big favor. Mixmaster Mike's uh, record collection's been stolen. They don't have any vinyl. And this was back when DJs were, you know, analog. They were mixing real vinyl. And he says, uh, we're kind of in a serious situation, and can you open up the store for them? I'm like, when? Like, well, now. We're actually driving down I-5 now. I'm glad I got a hold of you. It's like, uh, okay, I'll meet you there. And so I... Meet him here, I'm waiting, and all of a sudden, these three guys jump out like it's a sabotage video, and they're like, "Where's the wax?" And it's, and it's Ad Rock and uh, Mike D and Mixmaster Mike, and uh, they were here till three, four o'clock in the morning. And again, this was when I still had the vinyl in the basement where our, our office is now, 
And uh, there were some kids that saw that the Beastie Boys were in the damn shop. And, you know, then before you know it, you got all these kids outside the windows and, you know, yelling out Beastie Boys. And, and the, the guys were just super cool with the, the kids and their fans and stuff. And Ad Rock says, hey, man, just open up the door. Let's let these guys in, man. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. Let's fucking open up the door. And so we open up the door, and, and before you know it, we got more pizza coming, and, you know, uh... And then uh, Ad Rock was got behind the counter and started selling his own CD. And those were the first CDs to sell in the country because it wasn't out yet. And uh, and then they hooked up everyone that was there, all the kids that were there, and the entire staff with front row tickets for the show. Uh, that that's one that I'll never forget. Uh, Matt is full of stories uh, like this. You know, obviously when Vetter did a shift here impromptu shift when uh back when we had Ticketmaster. one of the most uh, famous comes from back when the mariners used to actually make the playoffs they were on the verge of a big win that would push them into the playoffs and easy street was selling tickets through Ticketmaster at the time on only one guy was working. that i called the store i was in portland at the time called the shop the guy answers the phone he's like hey what's up i'm like that is not how we answer the phone dude who who is this where's clark guy's like oh man i'm sorry i'm sorry it's my first day on the job i'm like dude who are you and he says oh shit who's this i was like this i own the place man this is matt he's like oh yeah okay yeah we've met before uh yeah uh yeah well this cash register is the same one i had in san diego at a gas station i got this i've already been working about a half hour i'm clocked in i'm helping your buddy clark out I'll be here. I got the day off. I can help out. I got this. And, and then it started to hit me. Isn't Pearl Jam in a Supreme Court lawsuit with with Ticketmaster right now? And I, and I think I brought that up. And he's like, oh, I'm trying to stay more on the record side of things. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was a good employee. And uh, we, we had a time card here for him for, for years. And so, someone stole it. But. No, we would see Ed all the time because, uh, you know, he he came from San Diego. He didn't really have a lot of friends when he arrived. He immediately was in this, this you know, Mother Love Bone, essentially, band with his songs. Uh, and then the rest is history. But it didn't give him a lot of time to make friends. You know, he was here to work. He was here to be in a band. And, and they, got, they got signed immediately, and they were on their way. Uh, and so I think a safe zone for him was Easy Street, and uh, we all became friendly with him. And you know, and, and then later, ten years later, we ended up doing a surprise show with the full band here. It may seem overwhelming to have started running a record store and to suddenly find yourself part of a cultural landmark, but Matt takes casual, confident pride in what Easy Street has come to represent. I wanted Easy Street to be a beacon of what's happening internationally as well. That this little store in on the corner of California and Alaska could be your cultural hotspot for what else is going on around the world through music. On the next episode of Podcast West Seattle, it's part two of our look back at 30 years of Easy Street Records. 
We'll learn about the addition of the cafe, some of the more recent memorable moments in Easy Street history, and a peek at what's next. Thanks to Matt for making so much time to talk to me and providing so much cool to our community. And thanks to Laura at the West Seattle Junction Association for helping make it happen. If you would like to hear more of Matt's stories, listen to the next episode of Podcast West Seattle. Subscribe on iTunes or follow on SoundCloud. And if that's still not enough Matt Vaughn for you, and you'd like to hear Matt in person, he will be speaking at the Southwest Branch of the Seattle Public Library. That's on October 21st at 2 p.m. It's part of the Southwest Stories series with the Southwest Seattle Historical Society. Check it out. I'm sure it will be great, as library programs tend to be. Speaking of library programs, there's a whole lot coming up at a library branch near you. I talked to a friend of the program, Jane Appling, from the West Seattle Libraries. Fall activities are starting up at libraries all across southwest Seattle. First and foremost, we invite everybody to come down and meet the chief librarian, Marcellus Turner, at the southwest branch on October 3rd at 1 p.m. Marcellus will be on hand to talk to you about our recent public needs assessment survey and to hear your questions, hear your thoughts about what you'd like to see in your libraries in the future. So October 3rd, Wednesday, 1 p.m. at Southwest Seattle, there will be coffee and cookies. Also at Southwest, on September 29th, a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we would invite you to the opening reception for the 27th Southwest Artist Showcase. Come on down and meet your artistic neighbors and enjoy the vast variety of talent we have right here in our own community. Also, throughout the duration of the show, all the way through October into November, every Saturday, there will be hands-on make art workshops for all ages. You're invited to come down with the, with the family and try out your own artistic talents in a variety of media. No pressure environment. There are both physical and digital creativity classes going on. Also starting in October, we have the annual Seattle Rights Series all across the Seattle Public Library system. There are workshops at many branches in October and November for your, all of you budding writers. We invite you especially to uh, Sunday, October 14th at 2 p.m. at Southwest. There's a workshop with Karen Finneyfrock on writing emotion in fiction. We have two teen poetry writing workshops happening in the region on 1021 and 1028 at the High Point and Delridge Libraries. Poet Anne Teplick will be here to work with teens on uh, expressing their feelings and views through poetry. We also invite you every second Wednesday at the West Seattle branch up in the Admiral District. Every second Wednesday at 6 p.m., the Hugo House hosts a writing circle there, and all interested amateur writers are welcome to join in. Also starting off this fall, we have Library Lab, drop-in all-ages STEM activities, kicking off at almost every branch in the southwest Seattle area. Check our web calendar at spl.org for specific days and times, and bring the family down to have fun with gizmos, gadgets, circuits, robots, and marvels of engineering. Everybody's welcome. Thanks, Jane. Next up, a little more music from Trick Candles. They'll be playing on Saturday, October 20th at Cascadia Brewing in Olympia. Let's hear some more music and meet a couple of the members. My name's Scott Langdon. I play drums in a band called Trick Candles. My name is Alyssa Martini. I'm in Trick Candles and I play the bass, the synthesizer, and the harp. Uh, We're out of Seattle, all over Seattle. Had a lovely set here at West Seattle Summerfest. It actually went way 
out here and see so many great bands, so many artists, so much great food, and just all your friends come out. Like, this is my favorite part of life. Trick Candles has a new EP, Pretend We're Alone, available on Bandcamp and Spotify. You should go to Bandcamp and give them money because these songs are pretty rad. Before we go, a great new season is about to open at Arts West. I stopped by and talked to Michael Wallenfels for a preview of the season and of the current show, Skeleton Crew. The theme is Beyond Ideas, and it comes out of a poem by the Sufi mystic Rumi. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. And this notion of beyond ideas is about how we spend a lot of time talking at each other and not to each other and with each other. We hide behind screens, and so getting beyond ideas of who is right and who is wrong and finding a place where you can connect. It's big in Skeleton Crew, where um, each of the four people in this um, Detroit Auto Factory are dealing with their own self-interests and have to preserve themselves as the financial crisis comes crashing down. We're going to be launching the West Coast premiere of a, a new chamber version of the musical Jane Eyre. And we're working with Justin Huertas, who made Lizard Boy at the Seattle Rep, which has become a local hit and is being workshopped with the potential to go to Broadway. So the new musical is called The Last World Octopus Wrestling Champion. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's <laughs> <laughs> M. Butterfly, which hasn't been staged in Seattle for almost 20 years. It's a critique of the opera Madame Butterfly. So Annie Baker is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. She won it for um, a play of hers called The Flick. And we're doing a play of hers called John, which um, is going to be a Seattle premiere. And then after that, we have Office Hour, which is likely the most startling play in the season. It directly addresses issues of gun violence. Yeah, we're kicking off the season Thursday, September 20th with Skeleton Crew, which is by Dominique Morisot. She is a playwright from Detroit, and this play, Skeleton Crew, is the third in a trilogy about Detroit um, that also includes Detroit 67 and Paradise Blue. They each examine Detroit from specific angles in time, and uh, different stressors and cultural moments in Detroit's history. There's a lot that happens in it. It's very funny, but it's also very moving and touching. It, it covers a wide range of emotional experiences as, as they all excise their, their own buried feelings about themselves and each other and things that are beyond their control. The sound designer on the production, Stefan Dorsey, is from Detroit. His family works in the auto industry. And the, the reason he told me he's so excited to be working on this play is that um, it's that story. It really captures that story in that moment, in that place. And it's a story that doesn't get told very often, and it needs to be told. Thanks, Michael. That's all for this episode of Podcast West Seattle. Look for the next episode in two weeks as we hear part two of our conversation with Matt Vaughn. In the meantime, we'll listen to a little more Trick Candles on the way out. I'm Andrew for Podcast West Seattle.